week's series, and we've called it The Gospel According to Isaiah. And what we mean by that is we mean the good news according to Isaiah. That although the darkness is great, I painted a picture in the last few weeks of um, the people of God have just reached this point, and it seems so dark. And when I started the series, I talked about this analogy of a cave, and that you go into the cave, and you just, you go into the back of a cave, and you just feel this oppressive darkness. And they're like, oh, is there no hope? But actually what begins to happen whenever you come out of a cave is that the light begins to shine in the darkness. And John 1.5 that Alice mentioned, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. I talked about this concept of redemptive hope, that there is always hope, that God never just leaves us stranded over here. He says, oh, you know, you've made your bed lie in it. He says, there is always hope. And so this is the position that we find ourselves in, in the book of Isaiah. And I And I talked about how Isaiah is the centerpiece of the Old Testament. It's a great viewpoint. It's like this mountain that you can look back to the beginning in Genesis and then all the way through to Revelation. It's got this huge sweep in it. And our hope with this series is not to go into an in-depth study of the book of Isaiah. That would have taken a few more weeks. But to allow Isaiah's prophecies written about Jesus to draw a picture of Jesus that we can stand back and marvel at. That we can look at Jesus and go, wow, you are utterly captivating. You are so beautiful. And so this morning, I want to talk about how Jesus brings about the restoration of all things. And I'm aware it's a pretty big title. The restoration of all things. Uh, It's ambitious. And because what happens is sometimes when we look at the scriptures and we look at the Bible, we take a parable. We focus in on one little interaction that Jesus has. And we kind of tunnel into the text, and it's just a small snippet of what's going in. Today, what I want to do is I want to do something completely different. I want to move back. I almost want to zoom out. And I want to look at the whole kind of sweep of the scriptures from Genesis through to Revelation, at the same time looking at this beautiful passage in Isaiah 61 that just brings and holds the whole thing together. And... So I'm talking about the restoration of all things. What do I mean by that? I mean the restoration of individuals, you and me, us sat here, the restoration of humanity and the restoration of the world. It's a pretty big title, isn't it? So what does even to restore mean? To restore, here's just, um, obviously there's different um, definitions of it. It says this, to return someone or something to a former condition, place, or position. So what happens with the sweep of the scriptures from Genesis through to Revelation is that it starts in the garden and then we end in the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. From God creating Adam and Eve in his image, in the image of God he created the male and female, giving them dominion and authority over the garden, over God's creation, to rule over it, to subdue it. Adam and Eve, we have this picture early on in Genesis, they're in right relationship with God. And it's a beautiful thing. They're enjoying his wonderful creation, the garden, as it talks about. It's bountiful. It's beautiful. And they're kind of luxuriating in it. And the peace would have been amazing. This is the picture that we're given. So the scriptures start here in creation. God's original intent was always human beings to rule over the world. And Adam and Eve had the first crack at it, and they failed. And if you know the story of the Bible, you know that next God called Abraham... And his family to take another shot. But tragically they failed too. 
What is the Old Testament but the story of one ruler after another trying to do what Adam was supposed to do, to rule over the earth in a life-giving way, but failing and often miserably ever read through one and two kings? With each Hebrew king that comes to power, you get your hopes up and you're sitting there thinking, oh, maybe, maybe this time they're going to do something all right. They're going to fix it. And then your hopes are dashed time after time after time. By the end of the Old Testament, you're sitting there thinking, how in the world is God going to fix this mess? And we've got the intertestamental period, this 400 years between the two testaments. It's easy to look at them and just be like, oh, that's just them. But it's also us as well. We've failed. We're Adam and Abraham and Israel. And you and I, we've just all messed up. Jesus didn't. He did what Adam was supposed to do but couldn't, what Israel was supposed to do but couldn't, what we were supposed to do but couldn't. And that's why immediately after his resurrection, he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The last two chapters of the book of Revelation are dripping with allusion after allusion of the first two chapters of the Bible. It's beautifully, it kind of bookends both ends. We, we read about in the end of Revelation, the tree of life, the river, no longer will there be any curse, that they will reign or rule forever and ever. The writer, John, is saying that the future is the return to the past. It's the return to Eden. It's restoration, restoring what has been lost. But notice something's changed. It's not a garden anymore. It's a garden-like city. It's the heavenly city. And in between these two poles, we have an epic story of fall and restoration. And in order to be restored, there has to be a fall. In order for relationship to be restored, it has to be broken and fractured. So let's read Isaiah 61. So if you've got your Bibles, just grab them. It's written in a time of great hopelessness, and the people of God are in an almighty mess, and Isaiah is prophesying. And he says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. It's beautiful imagery, this. It says, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise Instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of your God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame... My people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed." I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, 
For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. It's an amazing passage. There's so much in there. Some of you will recognize the first couple of verses in particular. Because this is how Jesus announced his ministry. We see this passage mirrored in Luke 4 in the gospel. Because what happened was Jesus went to the synagogue. And we know in the synagogue that one of the things that happened, in fact the central thing that happened, was that somebody would read a couple of verses out of the scriptures. They'd stand up and read them. So Jesus came and he read and he chose a particular text from Isaiah 61, this very passage, verses 1 and 2. And so he reads the servant of the Lord passage and he sits down. And the reason every eye is fixed on him is because it's his job to explain it. Instead of going into a long sermon, his sermon is only one sentence long. Oh, how you long for that to be the case. (laughs) Even right now, you're sitting there, James, just read the scriptures and give us a sentence. (laughs) Shut up. This was Jesus. He was a little more concise than me. And a lot better. But what... What does he say? What, here's the reason why the sermon is so short. He just says this. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Which means, I am he. I have come. I'm here. I'm the sermon. My life is the sermon. That's all you need to know. That's his sermon. What a way to announce yourself. To point back at a couple of verses about this incredible king that's going to come. And just to stand up and be like, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. It's me. This is what this passage is talking about. It's just incredible when you stop and think about it, isn't it? So what is it that he's saying that he's going to do? The thing that first hits you, I don't know about this passage, that hit me when I read it was the scope of it. It's like, oh my goodness, that he's going to do all of that. First of all, he deals with body and soul. For example, it says, he's coming to the poor. Now, when you're going to start a campaign, you're really careful what you say that first time. The first time you say something, you really want to watch it. You want to make, you want to make sure it's perfect, and then it perfectly convey, conveys what you're about. So the first thing that comes up and he preaches to the poor, he preaches to the poor, that has to do with economic brokenness. People that have just fallen through, they're in poverty. So that's the first thing. But then secondly, look, he binds up the brokenhearted. What's he dealing with here? Well, he's dealing with emotional brokenness. So you've got economic brokenness. You've got emotional brokenness. And then he goes on and he releases from darkness. It says, proclaim freedom for the the captives and release from darkness. These are two different things. He's talking about intellectual blindness. He's talking about spiritual blindness, not being able to see the truth. And then lastly, it says this, he sent me to find out the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and then down to this second verse, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It sounds awesome, but what does it mean? What is the year of the Lord's favor? What does he mean? He's quoting Leviticus 25. And Leviticus 25 is talking about something called the Jubilee. Not talking about the Queen's Jubilee here. Something very different. This messianic figure is coming to say, I have come to bring the Jubilee. So what is that? Well, 
we've all heard of the Sabbath. We know what the Sabbath is. For six days we work, and then on the seventh day that we rest. One day in seven, the Sabbath rest. But maybe you haven't heard, he also said to the people, one year in seven must be a Sabbath year. That's quite an interesting concept, isn't it? Let's take Brexit, and then let's take the Sabbath year. Could you imagine if we implemented a Sabbath year? For six years you work, and then on the seventh year you have it off. So he didn't just institute the Sabbath day, he also instituted the Sabbath year. And the Sabbath year was this. In those days when poor crops or poor fortune or poor judgment, just somehow you've ended up in a terrible place, you would come to the place where you were so in debt that you couldn't pay your debts off. And so you would become a servant to the people that you owed. You would, all, you would almost have to sell yourself into slavery. You would become their servant. So what happens is some people get loads more prosperous and they do really well. Some people have a horrible time and they get into an awful state. But every, God, every year God says, Sabbath. It's like this massive thing. And what is the Sabbath? It is the Sabbath year. All debts were forgiven. All servants went free. So it's this moment of just kind of rebalancing everything. The land was to lie fallow, and they weren't to farm it so that the nutrients could come back into the soil. They were to eat out of storehouses and not till the fields. So everybody rested. The land rested. You forgave your brother the debts that he had. So that's a picture of what the Sabbath year is about. That was in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But in Leviticus 25 we have one of the slightly weirder parts of the Old Testament. And it's weird because it was so radical. This is pretty radical, isn't it? Well, this is even more radical. And from what we can tell, it was never actually practiced. But it's always a possibility that it was supposed to be. But here's what would happen. Every seven days is a Sabbath day. Every seven years is a Sabbath year. But every Sabbath, Sabbath. In other words, every seven Sabbath years, which would mean the 50th year, Hence, the jubilee year. Every seventh seven of years, this was to be a jubilee. Now, the jubilee was even more extensive. Not only were all of the debts forgiven, not only were all of the servants and the slaves freed, but if you lost your family's original land in any time in that 49 years, bad crops, bad judgment, it came back to you. Do you see the scope of what's being talked about? The whole purpose behind the Sabbath year and the jubilee was... How do you make sure if you blow it, you know, you get it all wrong, and if you get a running start and a second chance? That's what it's about. How do you make sure that you don't have long-term families living in a culture where they are just downtrodden? Could you imagine how restorative this was? To suddenly go, do you know what? Come out of slavery. Come out of this awful position that you find yourself in. It's a moment of complete restoration. This was how it's supposed to be done. It's astounding and it's pretty remarkable. As far as we know, Israel never actually observed it. But the Messiah comes along, and what does he say? He says, I am the Jubilee. That's why it's so profound. He's saying, this is the year of the Lord's favor. I am going to change everything. I am the Jubilee. This is what it looks like. It is so huge. It not only shows that this means body and soul are going to be put together, but if you look carefully, it also shows that he's come to deal with individual and corporate problems. So look at verses 3 and 4. 
In verse 3, we see complete individual transformation. I will bring you a crown of beauty, oil of gladness, garments of praise. You'll become oaks of righteousness. It's not just symbolic. Oaks of righteousness means organic righteousness. God is not just going to declare you righteous, which he does when he wraps you in his robe of righteousness in verse 10. But he's going to make you actually righteous. He's going to put his spirit in you. He's going to put his nature in you. Sometimes we can get so blasé about the Holy Spirit, this gift of the Holy Spirit. What is happening when the Holy Spirit comes into a person? It's the very nature of God coming into somebody. When the nature of God comes into you, you have righteousness. It's not just a garment of righteousness. It's within you. It is so beautiful. So that's what we have in verse 3. You're going to become inside and out completely transformed, completely different. But then in verse 4, we see that they're supposed to go and rebuild cities. You look at verses 4 and 5, and it doesn't just say, you know, forget the cities. You go back and you rebuild the cities. And if you look carefully, in the city, there's going to be racial harmony. It says aliens are going to be working with you. Strange language now, but you have to be a little careful because the English doesn't bring out. For example, when it says the aliens are going to shepherd your flocks, that word for shepherd doesn't just mean that they're going to be your hired hands, somebody that you hire in, but that means that they're going to stand with you and they're going to take responsibility with you. So let's look at the scope. Let's just stand back. That's what I said. My whole idea is to stand back, to zoom out and look at the scope of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about racial harmony. He's talking about the rebuilding of cities. He's talking about personal transformation, social transformation, spiritual wholeness, psychological wholeness, economic wholeness, racial wholeness. It's magnificent. Jesus comes back and he says, this is what I'm about. Notice even the language within the passage. It says a number of times, it uses this little word, instead. Five times it uses this word, instead. So it goes, instead of ashes, the oil of gladness. Instead of mourning, a garment of praise. Instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. So all of these things, they have been in this position. That is not where they're going to stay. Instead of this, I want to give them this. Instead of this, I want to give them that. Can you see? Jesus will replace lack for abundance. He will restore and renew what has been lost. You'll notice in verse 3, it says this. It says, I will put on a crown of beauty where you've had ashes. What does that mean? He's actually talking very literally here. Because when somebody died... When anything went really wrong in your life, back then, you didn't just put on black, which is what we might do now. What you did was you put ashes on. So you went into the fireplace and you picked up ashes and you put them on your forehead. Not just, you know, kind of a little bit like the, the cross that, that you might nowadays see at Lent. No, you poured it on your head. Think about it. You would have looked awful. You looked ugly, totally dirty. You're saying, my life is like this. This is what my life feels like. It feels utterly awful. But you see, when the Messiah says, I'm going to give you beauty for ashes, he's actually referring to everything that we've just been talking about because essentially life is like this. And he's saying, instead of the ashes, 
I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to give you something beautiful. Jesus did not come only to forgive your sins, although that is massively important. Give you peace in our hearts and take you to heaven. Jesus does not come to earth and say, let me take you away you from all of this. He doesn't do that. He said, instead, he says this, I'm going to give you a joy and a power so we can rehabilitate the world. It's so much bigger. I'm going to bring you a joy and a power inside. I'm going to remake you inside so that we can be a part of remaking the world together. Therefore, when the Messiah comes and he's going to say, I've come back to make things whole. So he's saying, I've come back to rebuild everything, to restore everything, to reweave everything, to make everything whole. That's what he's after. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the only way that you can understand so many of the prophecies of Isaiah. So in Jesus, we're given this picture of restoration, bringing to life people and communities that have been dead, taking off the ashes. It's such a profound picture, isn't it? Just pouring ashes over yourself. He's like, I'm going to take that off. Instead of that, I'm going to give you something else. Our vision as a church, we have the language of restore. We call it restoring the city, renewing the nation. Because that's what I believe is the image that we're given in Jesus. Jesus comes to restore that which has been broken by sin and poverty and spiritual blindness. That is his heart. How does it happen? Through us. Hard as that seems to believe sometimes. Why? Because we're carriers of the kingdom. That's what he gives us. He says... When I put a little piece of myself in you, you carry the kingdom into every environment into which you go. And I'm asking you to be restorers of every place that you set your foot. I'm giving you the authority to go into those places and to see them changed. It's this magnificent vision that is so much bigger. Because so, sometimes we get so myopic. Sometimes we get so concentrated on this moment. And he's saying, look, step back. Look what it is that I've come to do. We can carry a garment of praise, an inheritance, a crown of beauty, of righteousness. That is who we are. This is our new identity. And God calls up and he says to us, I want you to live out of this new identity. You are no longer this. I've put my righteousness within you. I've given you all of these things. Now I want you to live out of this new identity. The power of the risen Christ. So we have this twofold hope. And this is really important because sometimes when I'm talking about this, you could think that I'm just coming from this triumphalist point of view. It's like, you know, this is the reality. There are these two things that we have to hold in tension because we're given a picture of this. That Jesus comes and inaugurates this new moment in history. He starts something and Jesus is saying, this is my heart to restore. But the reality is we live in the in-between times. So we do not see the fullness of the kingdom. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. I don't know for you, but for me, the Lord's Prayer is so profound. It's so powerful. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're doing when we're praying that is saying, Lord, this is the vision of what heaven's like. This is a picture of restoration. Lord, would you bring that to earth? Because we need it now. So we've got this two-fold thing that we're praying in the kingdom of God. Where, what is the kingdom where God's rule and reign is done? Where the things of God happen. That's the kingdom. And that's what he's asking. So on the one hand, we're praying, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And so we're praying that in. 
The other side of it is that we have a picture that we live in in between times, and we're given this picture of the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, that we're not yet there. We are not living in the fullness, because one day, there is still death here. One day, we get to go and be with Jesus. And this is the picture that we're given in Isaiah 65. And do you know what? I just wanted to read this. Oh, he said, maybe he's lost, lost the place. Isaiah 65, verse 17, it says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a de delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more, because we do have that still now. There is still pain. Never again... Will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years? The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child and the one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Then just going down to verse 25, it says this, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. It's a picture of harmony again, isn't it? Those two things going together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So we've got both of these things that we've got to hold intention. We've got to hold intention that the Lord wants to come and restore communities, individuals, lives right now. We're praying for heaven to come to earth, but at the same time, we're looking forward to a future where all things will be made right. And so it's in the tension of those two things that we live. But it's a magnificent picture of the Jubilee, isn't it, and what God wants to do. And so we want to be a part of restoring this city. We want to be a part of renewing this nation because that is what the Lord has commissioned us to do, to carry his kingdom wherever we go. Why don't we stand?